cliffcentral.com. Our guest is a man who I have been excited to uh, to speak to and to meet for a very long time. He's someone who has um, made in- enormous waves in the world of philosophy. He's a South African. He's a philosopher, an academic, and author. He's a professor in the Department of Philosophy at UCT. He's also the director of the Bioethics Center there. We'll talk to him in a minute. His name is David Benatar. The main thrust of David Benatar's work has been in uh, an area called antinatalism. Um, better to never have been born is sort of the, 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 the paraphrasing of that. His book is actually called Better Never to Have Been, The Harm of Coming into Existence. And he is our guest today. It's a great pleasure to have you on this morning. And, and David, thank you very much for making time for us. First of all, um, how, how go things in the world of philosophy post-coronavirus? <laughs> I don't know how to answer that question. Uh, much philosophy can be done on one's own and remotely. Right. So I imagine it's less effective than some other disciplines. But clearly teaching is losing out if you can't do it in person. So let's get straight into it because there are lots of people who've probably never heard of antinatalism before. Um, it's a fascinating area of, of interest to those of us who wonder about the meaning of life and those of us who consider that it all might be rather pointless uh, on our on our worst days or our best days, depending on your point of view, and then others who think that uh, this is this is a horrible and and, and evil and and uh, misshapen and nasty way of characterizing humanity and and the very purpose of existence. Now, I don't want us to get into moral arguments, and I don't want us to necessarily get into a situation where we characterize these things as being optimistic or pessimistic. I'm just interested in it purely from the point of view of a way of looking at the world and a way of looking at existence. How did all of this pique your interest in the very beginning? And, and how did you start to crystallize your ideas around antinatalism so that in doing so, you can perhaps explain to those people who might be as interested how they might arrive at similar conclusions? Well, without getting autobiographical, it seemed to me to be obvious for as long as I can remember. But when I first began to take active philosophical interest in the question was when I was working coincidentally on problems, ethical problems in population uh, ethics. And uh, there are these very intractable dilemmas that uh, characterize that particular area of inquiry. And I very quickly realized that the views that I'd held before, which we can characterize as anti-natalist views, provide some very nifty solutions to all of these problems. And so it became clear to me what the philosophical helpfulness would be of this idea. The, the idea being that it would have been better not to be. That's the antinatalist idea, yes, that it would be better for any individual not to have come into existence. Whether human or animal or anything else. The consciousness, obviously. Yes, conscious beings. I don't think it matters one way or another to a plant, which may be able to respond to its environment, but which, so far as we know, is not a conscious entity. So for conscious entities, better never to have come into existence. And for the other ones, it's just neutral. For the the non-conscious beings, it's just neutral, not good or bad. Right, but but there but there is still um, there there is a, a a nastiness to being alive and being extant in an earth and a universe that that is hell bent on on making sure that your life is as temporary as possible. Certainly, no one has been able to break that curse, um, mm-hmm. and and therefore it's very hard to argue existentially against your point of view here, since all existence does ultimately have an end, and that end is bound to be difficult, painful or just a realization that it was all kind of over at the point, if you are fortunate enough to have that realization before you go. 
Yes, look, there are responses to this view. Uh, I think that they, you, you want to avoid speak, speaking about optimism and pessimism, but I think these views are unduly optimistic. So I think that they are putting a positive spin where the positive spin is not warranted. I'm not opposed to optimism per se if it's warranted, but I don't think it is in this particular case. What the optimists are going to want to say is that, look, life contains not only bad, but also good. And they want to try and direct our attention towards the good. And I don't want to ignore that. And certainly once we're here, we must try to maximize the good, both for ourselves and for others. Sure. But uh, that's not the whole story. And that's not really the question that we're asking when we're asking whether or not it is better to come into existence. We have to compare there both the harms and the benefits of existence. And I think if we do that in the right kinds of ways, we come to the conclusion that we gain nothing by coming into existence, but we do lose some important things. You're not saying, uh, as I understand it, that those of us who have come into existence by virtue of this conversation, it's, it's you and me and whoever's listening, we're in this moment in time. You're not saying that we should all just give up and go out in a conflagration of, of desperation and suicide. You, you're, no. saying that, that <laughs> you're saying that before any of that happened, we didn't have an option as to whether or not to come into existence. And that may be the cruelest thing of all. Exactly. So there is a very important distinction to be drawn between coming into existence and going out of existence. Mm -hmm. uh, those are different things. So we, if you're not in existence, there's nothing to be gained by coming into existence. Once you're here, there are all kinds of hardships, but there's also a cost in ceasing to exist because you've become the kind of being that has an interest in continuing to exist. I mean, if we really want to get meta about this, the fact that we can even imagine antinatalism as a subject matter for discussion is almost a moot point because we wouldn't be able to if we didn't exist. So the, the subject that you write about is almost antithetical to the, the, uh, the, the state of being which you're postulating. Well, let's distinguish different questions. It is moot with respect to our own existence because that is irreversible at this point. I having coming into existence is irreversible, and that's mm -hmm. what I'm interested in. But what's not moot is whether we bring new beings into existence. So if we contemplate these questions and we reach the conclusion that it is indeed better never to have been, then there is something that we can do with respect to future possible people, and that is prevent them becoming actual. A corollary to that then must be that in your book, parenting, or rather not the act of parenting, but the bringing into existence of a child, the conception of a child, by two adults or otherwise, is almost criminal. <laughs> well, again, it's to me by criminal. Uh, it's not against the law anyway, nor do I think that it should be against the law, despite my conclusions. Immoral? How would you justify it? I would say that it's morally wrong. Uh, but again, there's a difference between that and sitting in judgment of people who procreate, because first of all, we all do things that we shouldn't do one way or another. Nobody's perfect. And secondly, not everybody has deliberated and thought about these issues, and they might not even have the opportunity to have done so. So I don't think people must get defensive and think, oh, he's telling me that I'm a, a wicked person. We need mm -hmm. to try and look at this a little more dispassionately and see whether this is something that we ought or ought not to be doing and then reach our conclusions. Well, I, I do want to have more of that discussion with you in a second. And, and I, I, I want to also just posit this at the very outset here, that, that it's not my point of view that 
that this is necessarily right or wrong. And I don't, I don't mind what people think, but I do think this is probably a very unpopular point of view, particularly among those who have children who believe that that is the greatest thing they've ever done. And in many situations, they believe it is the, it is the most meaningful and, and purposeful thing that they've ever achieved in their lives. Not to take away from any of that, because that's not our purpose here. Mm-hmm. But when you yeah. think about these things dispassionately, as you put it, you think about kids coming into existence, human beings, new consciousnesses being created out of wherever they may have come from before and, and going back eventually to wherever that is. Uh, the in-between bit, they didn't have a say in. There has to be some culpability. It's, it's, it's not necessarily a moral wickedness, but there has to be some culpability. If you're saying antinatalism is, uh, if, you, if you're saying not having existed is preferential to existing, then surely the people who made that happen have some culpability. Yes, but the degree of culpability can vary. So let's imagine nobody's had the opportunity to, a particular person has not had the opportunity to consider these issues. And they procreate because everybody around them is procreating. They haven't given a thought. They haven't had the opportunity to give a thought. We're not going to attach a large amount of blame to them. So Mm. whether you've done something wrong is different from how blameworthy you are. Those two things are different. I mean, mean, think about, let's imagine you knock somebody over in the street and uh, it could be because of negligence. Well, first of all, it could be because you intentionally did it. There'd be a high degree of blame attached to that. If it were negligence, right. there'd be a lesser degree. And let's imagine it were completely beyond your control. This was an accident in the literal sense of it being beyond anybody's control. It was just a freak event. Well, now uh, it's something that is what we call prevent-worthy. It's something that would be better not to have happened, but we wouldn't mm-hmm. attach blame to the person who, who knocked over the pedestrian. So blame, blamefulness and wrongfulness don't have to coincide. Well, I'm, I'm only curious here because there's an overlap with law. And if we, and, you know, much of law is, is from philosophy and vice versa. I'm, I'm interested in the inverse relationship, actually, in that people who have planned to have children, have thought about it quite a lot, have put some effort into the idea, are the ones who society regards as being the more responsible and by I, I don't mean to put words in your mouth here. You can correct me where I'm wrong. But by what you've just given as your criteria, it almost seems that the ones who accidentally create a child are less to blame, so to speak. Well, not necessarily, because it might be because of negligence uh, mm. and a reckless disregard. But let's take the people who intentionally procreate. Even many of them might not have heard of these antinatalist ideas. They might not have occurred to them. Uh, and I don't want to attach blame or certainly not large degrees of blame to people in that category. So I'd really rather move away from how much, um, how much we should blame people just to look at the, uh, at the action itself, appropriation, see whether it's warranted. I think that's important for more than one reason. But one of them is I think we can try and clear some of the emotional ground. If people feel on the defensive, then mm. they're going to be more resistant to considering the arguments dispassionately and impartially. I, I fear that many of the people who ought to have those discussions in a rational, dispassionate way are probably not going to be listening to us in the course of this conversation. Neither, 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 nevertheless, we'll have to um, forge forth regardless. I want to know about the influence of, of a guy called Peter Vessel Zapfer. And I'm interested in, in his theory in that he it seems to be the guy who who said at some point that humans are a kind of biological paradox 
Do you want to just explain to me, and, and I know that this is an area of, of much broader study than just him, but mm. what, his, what his influence was on, on the, the idea and the study of, of antinatalism? Well, actually, I was completely unaware of him when I came to my ideas and when I wrote about them. It was only much later that I heard about him. He was a Norwegian philosopher, and a very small part of his work is translated into English. I've read, I think, an essay of his in English. Uh, there was an attempt recently to do a, a, a translation of a long book that he wrote, but so far as I know, that's not come out yet. So there's very little of it that's accessible to English speakers, yeah. that is. Yeah, sure. Is, 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 um, is there a large community of people that you can have these conversations with, or is it fairly restricted to academic circles and, and, and those students of philosophy who you might communicate with in small pockets of the world? Actually, no, I've been quite surprised at how many people outside the philosophical community have taken up these ideas. And there is quite an active group of antinatalists, in fact, a number of, group of groups of antinatalists, uh, sometimes in tension with one another, as is uh, want to happen. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's had much broader appeal than I expected. Of course, it's still a niche environment. It's not a mass movement by any means. I can't imagine it ever would be. But I've been pleasantly surprised by how many people have taken up this idea. Explain to all of us what you mean when you talk about this, um, th th this asymmetry between pain and, and, and enjoyment or pain and pleasure. Mm -hmm. To this, the states of being that are available to humankind, you know, writ large. We're not going to get into the details of every kind of emotion that humans can feel. But there are good and there are bad things that can happen to us and good and bad things we can feel. It's all obviously very subjective. But the idea of this asymmetry, do you just want to explain that so that we can get off on the right foot if we, if we are to dis discuss or, or argue this? Yes, look, this does get quite technical quite quickly, and uh, I'm not sure how much we can probe that here in the short time available to us, but there are actually a number of asymmetries between good things and bad things. The, the primary one that I was interested in initially was an asymmetry between good and bad or between benefits and harms or, as an example, pleasures and pains. And uh, the asymmetry runs something like this. The idea is that the presence of pain is bad. I think that's pretty obvious and widely accepted. Uh, that the presence of pleasure is good, intrinsically. Of course, I'm not speaking about instrumentally, it's intrinsically good. And that the absence of pain is good, even if there's nobody who enjoys that absence. So if you fail to bring in somebody into existence and you thereby prevented, let's say, a miserable life, that's good, uh, even though there's nobody enjoying that good. But the crucial right. part of the asymmetry comes in with regard to the absence of pleasure, because that, I think, is not bad, uh, unless there is somebody for whom that absence is a deprivation. Can so you give me an example the, of that? Yes. Yeah, so, so let's imagine you are deprived of some pleasure. Well, then the absence of that pleasure is bad because you have that deficiency. You don't have that additional pleasure. But if there's no pleasure because there's no person to have the pleasure, that's not bad. And... One of the implications of this asymmetry is that the bad things in life count more than the good things with respect to questions about bringing somebody into existence. They don't, they don't count more necessarily with regard to people going out of existence. But with mm. respect to the question of coming into existence, it's a lose-lose situation to come in to existence. You, you, you're going to suffer bad things. And the good things that you have are good given that you exist but their absence of them wouldn't have been bad if you had not existed. In other words, now, the whole heart 
half of the equation that because we exist, we mm. can't we can't ascertain what that might be. Well, we, and we can know that it would probably have been less bad than the bad will experience having existed. Well, let's imagine you're thinking about bringing a child into existence. What you do right. know is that that child will suffer certain bads. That's inevitable, even if it's only death, which you spoke mm. about earlier. So you know there's going to be bad. In most cases, there'll be some good as well. And how much good there is will, will vary. But you know about the bad, and avoiding that bad is going to be good. In avoiding the bad by not bringing the child into existence, you're also avoiding the pleasures that the child will have, but the absence of those pleasures is not bad. And so you win by not bringing, or the child wins notionally by not bringing it into existence. It's very hard to have these conversations without people going to extremes. So when they talk about bad and good, you, you mentioned death already as the ultimate bad because it, it just ends the entire experience. Now, regardless of whether people may be religious and believe that there might be something before or after that, that's almost inconsequential because we can't access that information anyway. Mm. So all we have is what our senses supply us with. Those senses, by the way, also the, the, the only way that we can tell pleasure from pain, right? I mean, if it feels good, if it looks good, if it sounds good, we think it's good, but that's just because as creatures that have been biologically evolved to think and behave the way that we do, we seek out those things rather than the things that will harm and, and give us displeasure. Um, the extremes on the good side are worth a little bit of exploration. Are there any goods that outweigh these terrible bads, in your opinion? And people will say this is cynical or they'll say it's pessimistic. But I, I feel that you've you've done a huge amount of work, and I'm sure that when you think about the things that you think about on a daily basis, it is a consideration to, you know, at least expose yourself to the arguments against your position. And in this case, are there any goods that you've encountered that can outweigh the bads? Well, let me offer a clarification first. So if you're talking about the interests of the being that you bring into existence, hmm. and if you speak about the asymmetry that I've been speaking about hitherto, then mm -hmm. the harms are always going to outweigh the benefits because any bad that you avoid is good through not bringing the child into existence. And any pleasure that you avoid is not bad. So you've got mm -hmm. good and not bad. And so that it's, going to out, it's going to outweigh. So it's just by definition. Now, does it follow from that that procreation is wrong? No, not necessarily, because there might be interests other than that of the child that you bring into existence. And that's where it matters how much pain and pleasure there is in that child's life mm -hmm. uh, so that you can now weigh that up against the interests of other beings in bringing this child into existence. And here I think there are a range of other asymmetries that are relevant between pleasure and pain, which suggest very, very strongly that there is more bad in life than, than good. And I'll, I'll mention just a few of them. So think about chronic pain. There are lots of people who suffer from chronic pain at some point in their lives. They start and it goes on and on for years, sometimes the, re the remainder of their lives. There is no such thing as chronic pleasure. Correct. Think about an injury. An injury can happen in seconds. You might never recover from the injury, but if you do, recovery is very slow. Hmm. The worst pains are much worse than the best pleasures are good. We can test this. If somebody doesn't believe us, we can offer them a, a choice. Of course, it'd be unethical to really follow through with this choice, but we could say to them something like, well, we'll give you five minutes of the worst pains imaginable, 
uh, and then we'll give you, let's say, 10 or 15 or 20 minutes of the best pleasures imaginable uh, in, in exchange. Would you take that deal? And I think any rational person wouldn't take that deal because to put up with the worst pains imaginable for five minutes is just excruciating. It is much, much worse than the best pleasures are good. So these are just a few of many, many considerations which I think should lead us to think that there's actually much more bad in life than good. If, if we suspend for a moment the, the judgment that people are bound to heap upon this at this stage and, and say, well, this is just this is the most miserable uh, picture of reality that we can comprehend. Yeah. And we move to the, the point of view that you kind of hinted at earlier, that there are greater societal things that are going on, too, and that you don't know necessarily what the long tail of your good on Earth might deliver to future generations. There might be people born in the future who, and I don't think you'll argue with me about the fact that living now is better than living at any other point in history has been for humans as a, as a general experience, right? That, that in some way in the future, there may be a way for us to opt out of at least a, a large proportion, uh, perhaps even maximally, to opt out of, of the pains of life and the difficulties of life. And maybe that there is, even if it is utopian to imagine this, technology, that there are advances in medicine, that there are ways for us to constitute an existence that is much less painful and dreadful than the one that you and I are comprehending now. Is that not worth forging forward for, for as, a, as a race? Is that not worth trying to build a society with the aim of achieving? Well, I, th I think, first of all, history is not linear in terms of improvements. There are steps forward and steps backward. I do think in many ways we're better off now, at least some of us are better off now than people were a few hundred years ago. But not everybody. A lot of people do not have any access to the modern developments which can make lives better. And there's certainly places where people's lives are much worse now than they were 100 or 200 years ago. If they're living under oppressive conditions, for example, and if you'd been in the same place years before, you might not have been in, in such circumstances. Right. But I also think it's overblown to put too much store and hope in, in, in medical technology uh, and other scientific technology. I think there is scope for improvement and our condition could be alleviated to some extent. Uh, but it's inevitable that something else will come in its wake. So if you think about dealing with infectious diseases, and I'm thinking about before the pandemic, uh, mm. a lot of people believe that infectious diseases were, were conquered, that we'd got over that, at least in the developed world, and we weren't going to return to it. Well, and the pandemic arrived. And in any event, when people don't die from pandemic, they die from uh, malignancies, let's say, in greater numbers than they did before. So the, the causes of death in the developed world tend to be different from those in the, in the underdeveloped world, in the poorer parts of the world. And then the other worry that I have about your line of argument is whether even if your argument was sound, in other words, even with the case that we could expect a much brighter future at some stage uh, in the future of humanity, are we warranted in reproducing in the interim? So mm. let's imagine somebody, let's say in the year 500, imagines some future time when we'd have a thing called anesthesia, where if you need a tooth removed or a limb amputated or some other surgical procedure performed, that you'll have access to the substance that will make you unconscious during the surgery. So, well, let's hold out for that. Well, you would have had to hold out to the 19th century. Think about all the people in the meantime who had to go through these excruciating procedures without anesthesia. It seems thoroughly indecent to me to say that it's okay to have a child now because in 500 or 1,000 or in 2,000 years' time, people might have relief from some of the miseries that we have now. So your argument for this 
is really philanthropic as opposed to misanthropic? This argument is a philanthropic argument. I think there are also misanthropic arguments for antinatalism, and there's a sense in which those have much greater currency. I don't think they produce as categorical an antinatalist conclusion as the philanthropic arguments what do. Ki- what, kinds of, what kinds of misanthropic arguments have well, people problem? The environmental one, for example. So a lot of right. people say part of our problem is the number of people on the planet. Part, of course, is the rate of consumption and the rate of, uh, of greenhouse gas emissions. But if you have fewer people, that's one way of diminishing that impact. And so one part of our problem is just how many people there are. And they say, well, we right. should just be having fewer children as a result. That's an idea with quite widespread currency. Yeah, it is. It is a particularly interesting time for these arguments to be offered because I think many people are are, are warmer to them than at any other time in in human history. I think you do look around sometimes, and we all vacillate between "Oh my God, we're all so fucked" to "Oh my God, it's wonderful being alive." Um, and somewhere in between is probably the truth. But there is this climate change movement at the moment. There are lots of people who do talk about overpopulation in a way we haven't spoken about it before. But really, I mean, at, at the end of all of this, if you if you do want to look at the lifespan of the universe, we came into existence as creatures at some point a couple of billion years ago, and we will go out of existence. Those two things are absolutely definite. And, and all living creatures will eventually uh, pass because nothing in this universe is, is permanent. Nothing, absolutely nothing. Is, you know, stars eat up whole solar systems and each other. Um, there's there's a, a huge amount of nothing coming. Exactly, we're all we're all doomed in the end. <laughs> this is this is such a happy conversation. Can I quickly you brought up <laughs> since you brought up COVID? Um, I I read an article that you um, you wrote in I think it was Business Day about uh, compulsory vaccination. Um, would you would you just give us your position on compulsory vaccination and perhaps talk about you know I opened up with that glib comment about house philosophy doing during COVID, but it has raised a number of interesting questions that perhaps many people have not wrestled with unless they were philosophers before this. Yes, well, uh, my view on mandatory vaccination is not straightforward. That's part of what I was trying to convey in, in, this, uh, in this article. One thing I did was respond to the view that, well, look, it's my body and I get to decide and I've got freedom and I shouldn't have the government intruding in, in making these decisions for me. And I think there's a problem with that argument because our right to freedom doesn't extend to harming other people. So if I want to go around bashing other people and the state wants to stop me doing that, I can't say, well, you're interfering with my right to to freedom. My right to freedom does not extend to that. And uh, people who are not being vaccinated are are actually putting other people at risk of very severe harm uh, for spreading the disease further, for uh, allowing mutations to develop. Uh, So this is a risk you're uh, imposing on other people. Now, does it follow that the government is justified in, let's say, criminalizing not the unvaccinated and imprisoning them or strapping people down and forcibly vaccinating them? I don't think that follows. And that is mm-hmm. because there are a whole array of public policy options that are available to, uh, to, to the government and legislative options. And not just government, by the way, but to organizations and other kinds and of groups. Yeah. Yes, groups, yeah. Ex- yeah. exactly. And so uh, there what I would say is we don't want to unnecessarily interfere with people's freedom. So if we can secure the necessary goods with hmm. less intrusions into people's freedom, then that is obviously preferable to unnecessary intrusions into freedom. 
And I think we could actually get quite far in vaccinating the whole population through incentives, uh, through mandates of a kind. In other words, you know, forcing people literally to uh, have a vaccination injected into their arm. But you might make it a condition for entry onto an aeroplane, for entry into a restaurant, to a school, a university. And that seems entirely reasonable and not without precedent at all. We already got precedents for that with other conditions. It is, though, a nuanced argument. And, and unfortunately, these kinds of argument find very little fertile ground in, in a world where politicians have co-opted much more simplistic and, and, and much more black or white positions on all of this. It must be frustrating for philosophers to find themselves in a whirlpool of just unbelievably straightforward and quite dogmatic uh, simple answers to, to complex you, questions. You have no idea. Uh, it's, immense, <laughs> it's, it's immensely frustrating. It's immensely Look, frustrating. You're, you're not afraid of controversy. Certainly the antinatalist point of view is, is a, is a con- controversial one. But the other area that you've gotten to uh, arguments with people about, well, there are two others that come to mind, but the one that's most prominent is this idea of, of misan- misanthropic behavior or, or rather misandry um, as opposed to no, in fact, it's, it's, uh, yes, it is misandry, mis- misogyny and misandry, right? The idea that we are, we're specially, uh, discriminating against men and boys in the world today. Uh, this is a, a very unpopular point of view because, of course, we know that there are huge uh, movements of, of feminism all across the world. The two aren't necessarily opposed to each other and shouldn't be, in my opinion. But even bringing this up makes you seem to be an enemy of those who espouse the the ideals and the, the principles of feminism. Do you just want to explain how this became a subject of interest for you? Well, let me sh- let me actually answer a different question, if you don't mind. Uh, I mean, well, I, suppose, well, I suppose one way of answering the question is to say I identified a neglected area, uh, and I want to clarify: I do not deny that women and girls are the victims of sex discrimination. I don't deny that at all. What I'm saying is that men and boys also are. And we hear a great deal about the discrimination against uh, women and girls. We hear very little about the discrimination against men and boys. And so because there was that gap, I felt it needed to be filled. So I could have said more about the discrimination against women and girls, but thousands of people are doing that. What's the value in another person saying the same things again and again? So I wanted to say something different that I think is also true. Well, what kinds of things did you encounter? Because you, you're not the kind of person who just postulates this and then leaves it out there and lets people argue based on their feelings. There are, mm. there are good examples of how men are discriminated against in society. We can look at prison populations. We can look at, at, uh, at, at work in labor, for example, as opposed to work in the professions. We can look at, uh, at crime, being the victims of crime. We can look at a number of, 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 of other, uh, ugly factors that make it much more, let's say, unpleasant to be a man in some places and sometimes. Yeah, there are disadvantages, I think, to being both uh, both sexes, why the sex, and uh, some of those disadvantages are the product of discrimination, and sometimes it's wrongful discrimination. So mm-hmm. one example, I think a very widespread one, less so now than in the past, but still true, is the conscription of men exclusively and not also women. Very few jurisdictions into the army, yes, very few jurisdictions that conscript women. And even then, they tend to have many exemptions that that men don't have. Uh, And then being sent into war. I mean, that's a very serious disadvantage. 
Now, there are arguments for why this is not wrongful discrimination, and I have looked at those in detail in the book. I do recognize that there may be average differences between men and women, but my view is that where we can focus on individuals, we should focus on individuals rather than on the sort of average differences. It may be, that, it may be true that men on average are taller than women, that men on average have greater upper body strength than women, but that's a very blunt instrument if you wanting to conscript people into the military where there are a whole range of activities, not all of which will require height and, uh, and upper body strength. And also there are certainly going to be some men who are shorter and weaker than some women. And so if the relevant variable is the strength or the height, then you should focus on that variable rather than the sex. Now, Particularly, this, particularly in, in a modern military where, where the actual physical strength of the person has become probably less important than it has been in any other military sense in history. Probably true, although there will be sectors of the military where that strength is still required. Yeah. Yeah, the infantry, I mean, for example. So, so there are – the point I want to make is, again, there's a nuance here. It's, it's not the case that every time we find men disproportionately represented in unpleasant circumstances, that this is fully attributable to anti-male sexism. So I doubt, no. for example, that the fact that – it can be choices, but sometimes those choices are in themselves affected by gender roles and gender expectations. So that's a sort of upstream form of discrimination. But even sure. then, I think we're going to find differences on average between men and women. So I would expect that you would find more males in prison than women, even if you control for uh, the, the sex discrimination. I doubt it would be quite as skewed as it is now. And there's very good evidence, for example, that women are treated more leniently uh, in, at every node of decision in the judicial system. Uh, so that's one example. Uh, but the curious thing is that when women are underrepresented in desirable circumstances, that is routinely attributed entirely to anti-female discrimination. Yeah. Whereas when men are overrepresented in undesirable circumstances, the assumption is, well, that's just men behaving badly. Uh, well, that's just that's where, just where the chips fall, and there's nothing that we need to do about that. We seem to have a disproportionate uh, feeling of, of responsibility for the individual on one hand, and, and, and on the other hand, the opposite. That's one way of putting it. Uh, another way of putting it is to say that it's, it's viewed as discrimination in the one case and biology or something else in the other. And well, I think that's an oversimplification. And, and uh, an immediate example that springs to mind is, is the way that, for example, custody is awarded to, uh, to, to women and men in, in most Western judicial uh, systems. You know, there's a, a huge bias in favor of the mother and for sometimes good reason, but other, other times not. It's, it's wholly insensible, especially if the mother is, a, you know, a derelict or a, a real danger to her children. Still, the man is, is given a kind of backseat in the situation in most of these systems. Again, you're correct. There's very good evidence that uh, males in some societies are at a disadvantage with respect to custody of their children following divorce. So mm -hmm. even, for example, if the father was the primary caregiver of children prior to the divorce, his chance of getting custody is lower than a woman who was the primary caregiver uh, prior to the divorce. That's just one example. You're a, you're a famous vegan, or at least as, as famous as vegans can be just for being vegan. It's not the reason you're famous. Um, and you've had arguments and debates with people about this. 
do they do your interlocutors in these situations throw the antinatalism thing in there as a way of kind of distracting? Well, what do you care about what you eat if it's all purposelessness and there's no reason to be in existence and you're inflicting harm anyway just by existing? Do they use that as their primary point of attack or are they a little more smart about this? I'm not heard that particular argument. Not all the arguments are smart at all, but uh, uh, I've not heard that particular argument. Actually, there's an interesting congruence between antinatalism and and veganism, and I found that there are many people who have sympathies for the one who are drawn to the other, because there's a kind of underlying logic that's quite similar. I mean, certainly in the in the animal agriculture industry, where you're bringing billions of animals into existence just to slaughter them, often weeks later. I mean, this is just immensely uh, bad from an antinatalist point of view. But even if you were not an antinatalist, uh, it's it's deeply problematic. So uh, I think uh, those two ideas are not really in tension with one another. They they they're more congruent. What what is the most interesting argument you've had from someone against the position of antinatalism, which perhaps gave you pause for thought and and made you consider or reconsider? Or just think about their point of view a lot longer than you might have in in arguments where you knew you had solid ground beneath you. It's hard to say. There are no arguments that have really given me pause in the sense that when I've considered them carefully, I thought, well, maybe there's something to this. But clearly there are more sophisticated and less sophisticated arguments. And when you have a more sophisticated argument, you've got to sit down and read it and think about it and see what the person is saying. And often the first challenge is to work up, well, what exactly is the argument? Because that's right. not always entirely, entirely clear. And because often there's, so much, are, there's so much semantic creep these days, too, that it's very hard to know that you're speaking the same language as someone, to actually figure out what they really mean. Exactly. And so this is a pretty standard tool in philosophy. Is First of all, certainly in, in analytic philosophy, as the name suggests, what you try to do is you first analyze or what, what, is the, what does this claim mean or what is this argument? Because only then are you able to evaluate it. And sometimes the moment the argument becomes clear, you can see the, see the flaws in it. But then you have to be careful that you have rendered the argument, understood the argument in its most charitable form. So, David, if, if, I'm, if I'm coming at you from the opposite point of view and I say that according to your argument, biology and the, the means through which we interpret the world around us, good or bad, is entirely dependent on our biology and on our senses, then we must also bring into the argument the fact that our senses and and our DNA, in fact, are the very purpose for our existence, is to make more of itself. And that's an undeniable fact. That's biological. We, we need to procreate because that's our purpose. Uh, certainly in terms of, of you, you know the way that evolution works, that seems the most simple way to to figure our biological purpose on earth. If that's the case, why argue against it? Um, if the only means for interpreting the universe is those same biological features, which make us do these things. I'm worried that there's something misleading about the language of purpose, because it suggests a purposive agent, some agent that is endowing your life with that purpose. And if you follow this sort of genetic evolutionary view, then the idea is, in Richard Dawkins' words, there's a blind watchmaker. It's not an intentional agent that is endowing you with mm-hmm. this purpose. So your genes may function in a particular way, and your biology might function in a different way, but that's different from uh, from a purpose. 
But in any event, I would resist putting too much thought on this because there are people, let's say, Genghis Khan is the most famous example. I think uh, a large proportion of humanity is a descendant of... Well. <laughs> so I think it was about 10% of people within a certain geographical range on Earth are descendants of Genghis Khan. Now, uh, I doubt that all those relationships were consensual ones that led to those offspring. No. Uh, and so here's an example where there's a sort of biological imperative in scare quotes to have as much of your genetic material passed on, but which we don't just accept as morally acceptable. We, we think, well, no, there's certain moral limitations on what you may do and what you may not do. So you can either treat yourself as a machine, uh, a biologically developed machine that operates in a certain way, or you can try to rise above that and think, how ought I to behave? What ought I yeah. to do? And, and, and is it right to bring children into a world that we're fairly convinced is not going to be easy for it? I mean, there's also a huge amount of solipsism and, and egomania that comes into this, right? Uh, the fact that many people, there are children that need to be raised that they, they could be adopted but many people choose to make new ones um <laughs> this this isn't love this is egomania again i i mean i think it sometimes is and it might be in a, in a deep level but i'm not sure that that's that most people are acting i'm not sure it's charitable to say they're acting in a narcissistic I way I'm specifically not being yeah. charitable to, okay. so, that, so that you can argue this point for me. I, I don't want yeah. to make it easy because I think your, right. your, your means of understanding this are probably a lot more complex and sophisticated than mine. Therefore, I'm, I'm giving you the worst case scenario. I mean, here's your straw man. <laughs> well, I'm sure there are narcissists that are reproducing because they're narcissists. I think mm. there are other people who are doing so because it's a kind of biological urge. Sometimes it's a biological urge just to have sex and then reproduction is the is the byproduct of that. And they may or may not be thinking about that byproduct. But sometimes there is a kind of biological urge to parent. And people just think the natural way to do that and certainly the easiest way to do that is to uh, is to reproduce. Much harder to adopt a child. Although I do sure. agree with you that that is the preferable option because you can gain the benefits of rearing without, without procreating. Uh, so... I mean, I think part of the problem with procreation is that it's just so normal and so widespread that it's hard for people to view this as an activity that they ought not to be engaging in. And I'm talking about procreation now, not um, not not sex. You know, all the sex you like is uh, if, if you're not but procreating you're, within the moral constraints, of course. Sure. I mean, this is an interesting point of view, though, because I, as an aside, do you think people would be making as many other people if it wasn't so pleasant to have sex? No, I certainly don't. I mean, that's that's the evolutionary explanation for why uh, sex is pleasurable. If it were if it were neutral, there would be fewer people, and if it were painful, there'd be even fewer people. So uh, there's a kind of biological adaptation uh, f through sex being pleasurable. But in our era, in our in in certain parts of the world, you can separate sex from procreation. They don't have to be linked. Contraception has has been a great advance in that way. Uh, so sometimes what helps you is to step out, to step away. And one little thought experiment that I've offered in the past, your listeners can find it online, is this idea that you've got a magic wand. And if you go around tapping stones or rocks with this wand, they turn into sentient beings that can have pleasure, but can also suffer and die. 
And the question is, should you go around tapping these rocks and creating sentient beings? Now, that, that thought experiment provides us with a certain distance from our own procreation. And I think if we thought about that kind of case carefully, we'd say that there's something abhorrent about this. It's gratuitous. Why would you go around tapping these rocks? What advantage are you bringing to anybody? What good are you doing? Okay, so the rock will then enjoy certain pleasures, but it will also suffer all these terrible things. If you don't tap it, it'll just remain there inert, unconscious. Uh, that seems to me to be a, a much better scenario. Do people accuse you uh, of, of being morally superior because of these views? Because that, that isn't an argument against them, obviously. But it, it, it might make them feel better about having the opposite point of view. I think that's a common argument, not just here, but in other areas too. So veganism, for example, if you say to people, you think it's wrong to kill and eat animals and think, well, some people will say you, you're morally superior, but, yeah. or you think you're morally superior. But again, I try to depersonalize this because this, it's possible for somebody to think, let's say, that they shouldn't be killing and eating animals, that they shouldn't be having children, and they do it anyway. Uh, yeah. And so... The, there's a difference between thinking what you ought to do and then what you do do, because you might just have a weakness of will, uh, might not be able to act on your own judgments. Uh, and the other thing to recognize is that you can, everybody makes mistakes. Everybody does things they shouldn't do. Nobody's perfect. We all have our blind spots. We all have our shortcomings. And so when you enter into a, an inquiry into whether an action is right or wrong, that's an inquiry which must be taken seriously on its own merits and it must be evaluated. And that's separate from can I comply with that and uh, am I a better person or a worse person for reaching a particular conclusion? So how long until more people come to your side and we start to drastically reduce the population or the need to continue existence? <laughs> no, I'm not optimistic about why are we not learning? I mean, if if because life is undoubtedly a difficult and, and and dangerous and not particularly pleasant experience for many people, and for all of us it does end, as we discussed at the very beginning of this conversation. But we seem not to learn. We seem to keep inflicting this, to use the worst possible terminology for making new people, inflicting this on unwitting, newly conscious sentient beings. Welcome to humanity. I mean, um, humanity makes these mistakes again and again. I mean, uh, maybe this is too controversial, but we've got a South African Communist Party. How many times does the communist experiment have to be tried before we realize that it brings misery to millions and millions of people? Yet uh, we keep doing. Somehow people don't learn from, uh, from the mistakes of others. Sometimes they don't even learn from their own mistakes. Now, on the antinatalist front, I do not have any expectations that we're going to move significantly towards antinatalism as a species. I think on the vegan front, that's much more likely, uh, much yeah, more that, likely that I, people will begin to recognize the barbarism of these activities. Until of course we discover that there's something about plants screaming or something when you cut them and then <laughs> we're driven to a new paradigm because I'm sure that there was a point in our very ancient history where people were even more barbarous with each other than, we are now or that we were in in the discernible past so okay if we're not optimistic about the future then many people will go well what's the bloody point i mean you know the the 
the really cynical person will say, well, why shouldn't we just end it all now? Well, that's a common line. Another common line to dismiss me, say, well, why haven't you killed yourself? I think the answer to that is tied up with what we spoke about earlier, that there's a difference between coming into existence and ceasing to exist. And I think it's perfectly consistent a, to hold the view. It's a bit rude, especially because you've spent so much time thinking about this stuff on behalf of the rest of us. It is. I think it's dismissive and it's nasty to, to, to make that kind of argument. And, of course, it's ignorant because it's, it's said in, without awareness of what the argument actually is. You, you haven't any desire to make children? That's an autobiographical question. I know, and but, it, but it, it is pertinent to the discussion. And I don't expect you to say, because when people ask me and I don't have kids yet, I go, I, well, I reserve the right to change my mind. But for the moment, no. Well, let me just say that I know people who would like to have children, uh, but who also recognize the arguments against having them. Just because right. you want something or just because you'd like something doesn't mean to say it's okay. Yeah. Have you ever had your arguments co-opted by either side of the political uh, axis, the, the, the left, the right? Are there, are there people in politics who are more, um, let's, let's say, who are, who are looking to use your arguments in some political context that irritates you? Yes, yes, indeed. In fact, uh, I'm, I occupy a, a no-friend zone almost no friend zone because some of my views are just dismissed as sort of ultra mad left views by people who look at those views and want to categorize and want to box them. And then they look at other people will look at other views that I have and want to dismiss me as some fanatical right winger. Uh, And it's, it's so, it's so cheap to look at a view, to want to immediately box it, not to look at a constellation of a person's views. I want to engage every issue on its merits and I think that when you do that, you will find there is some merit to what people on the left are saying, are saying, and there's some merit to what people on the right are saying, and there's some merit to what people in the middle are saying. And we need to be able to pick out the best parts across the political spectrum, and then we will get closer to the truth. It's not that everybody on some opposite end of the spectrum to us is a complete idiot. I mean, maybe, the, maybe it's disproportionate on one side rather than on another, and I certainly see madness. The further to the ends of the, of the spectrum you get, the more madness there is. Mm. Uh, but I don't see why we have to have these, this boxing of people and of ideas. Why can't we evaluate them on their merits and see where they lead? It's just, it leads to such an infertile place. I'm, I'm using that word especially because of the mm. subject of my discussion. But it seems like such a barren place to kind of take an argument and discussion and conversation even. Do you think people are getting better or worse at arguing? Because for a while, it looked like we were on an upward trajectory. And I think recently, especially because politics has become so polarized and, you know, you have to be part of this tribe or that tribe, mm. it becomes so much harder to argue with people without them thinking that it's personal. It's hard to know what the broad sweep is, but I certainly have that impression over the last, say, decade that things have got a lot worse in, in our society uh, and in societies like ours. Mm. Well, may the may the philosophy departments continue to flourish because they're at least thinking big picture. When and you know you hear a lot of these motivational speakers and you hear a lot of people in the corporate world talking about big picture, but really there isn't a bigger picture than existence. So I'm delighted to have a discussion with you about this. It's it's an area of 
particular expertise for you, and it's an area of great interest for many of us. So thank you, David. It's a pleasure to speak to you. My pleasure. Nice to be with you. Thank you. Thank you. Have a, have a lovely day. Thanks. You too. Bye-bye.